Welcome to the second of our monthly conversations with Konstantin, who is one of the most respected voices on YouTube about what is happening inside Russia. Konstantin Samailov is a well-known YouTuber whose channel Inside Russia comments insightfully on Russia's descent into authoritarianism over the last few years, but now, like many others, he's outside Russia with no idea when he can return there. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please do subscribe to the channel if you find this video interesting and you won't miss any future episodes that we put out. Do also please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron and you could also buy me a coffee. Konstantin, welcome back. Hello, Jonathan. Fantastic to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation as I now do on a monthly basis. It's a great privilege to be able to unpack what's going on with you. Predominantly, we're going to talk about the economy. But before we go into that topic, which, you know, I agree with you is incredible strategic importance, we have to address the elephant in the room. And that is Gaspardin Prigozhin, who has come to a bit of a sticky end. Or has he? I know you've been watching a lot of materials. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on. But what is your take on the Prigozhin saga? Uh, may I sing a little bit? Yes. Boom, boom. He hit the ground. Bing, bing. His baby shot him down. <laughs> you know, that's basically what happened with Prigozhin. Um, I was making a live stream right after um, the mutiny ended. He turned back and he started moving to Belarus. And basically, everything was pretty clear to me. And in a live stream, I said that the consequences of the mutiny were this. The Prigozhin was the dead man walking. And it was a only a matter of time. And uh, Wagner was no more. Also was only a matter of time. And I actually thought that it would take a few more months, like four or five months, but um, it's two months. You know, notice how the mutiny started on the 23rd and Prigozhin's plane was shut down on the 23rd, day to day, two months later. Okay. Um, it's fairly obvious what happened to his plane. It was shut down. Uh, they're playing with many, um, many versions right now, uh, many scenarios. But I have one question to the investigators or one suggestion. Please show us the fuselage, you know, the body of the plane. That will answer all the questions. They don't want to do that for obvious reason because... You know, the missiles, they leave very certain traces, you know. Um, so to me, if they don't show us the plane, it's like a proof what happened. Um, Ukrainians definitely couldn't have done that because it's right in the heart of Russia, 35 miles from Putin's home, one of his homes. So it's obvious. I mean, all fingers are pointing into one direction. And of course, there would be... Uh, telltale signs on the fuselage pockmarks like there was on MH17, you you know, which was a book missile in that case, um, it would be pretty obvious, wouldn't it, if a proper examination was done. And the irony, of course, is that the uh, air defences that seem to struggle to hit Ukrainian drones um, hit this plane with pinpoint accuracy. 
Yeah, that's not a drone, you know, that's a jet plane uh, flying like what nine kilometers up or something like that. That's yes, there are many questions. You raise a, an interesting point as well. 35 miles from one of Putin's homes. That suggests that he may well have been sort of uh, sitting there with a with a bag of popcorn and uh, enjoying the spectacle. I mean, that's feasible, right? That's possible, yes. <laughs> now, this obviously is a is a is a short term event. What is the strategic implication, however, for the progress of the war and especially for destabilization within Russia, if we now see? the elites turning on each other uh, and potentially rumors of a major purge about to begin. Um, I think the purge has started. We have quite a few names already. And um, this is, you know, I think the purge started a long time ago and it started with the opposition figures, opposition people, opposition parties. Okay. Navalny was the first and the rest of the opposition followed. And now there's a second stage of the purge. It's people who support the war, who are on Putin's side, but they're a little bit independent and um, at least a little bit of sovereignty. And they look at the war at a different angle. They have their own opinions. They got to go. Igor Strelkov, Sorovikin, the Popov, another general, uh, well, have you heard anything from Dmitry Piskov lately? I haven't for about four weeks. It's about four weeks, isn't it? He's totally yes, off the radar. four weeks. He's just disappeared. And the funny thing is no one has mentioned anything about him like he never existed. Okay. Um, now Prigozhin. So, you know, um, I think the purge has started the second stage and we're going to be seeing more of that. Basically, show us the, that Russia in 2023 is a mafia state and it's run by the mafia rules. Okay. It's a, it also, you know, strikes back to the era before Peter the Great, where you regularly had, you know, people like Stelzi, you know, assassinating rulers. Uh, you had poisonings, murders in the Kremlin, you know, familial struggles and so on, peasant revolts. We're back into extremely turbulent times. And I think that leads nicely into the topic we're going to discuss, which is the economy. And I think we both share the view that the economy is another source of extreme instability. So how's it going? Well, yes, it is. In my eyes, the economy is the foundation of everything in the country. Okay, and Russian economy has been caught in a perfect storm. In current conditions, it does not stand a chance. Few economic factors have come together to form this perfect storm. And I'll briefly summarize what this perfect storm is about, if you don't mind. These factors are, number one, the export revenues have fallen down for about 50%. Russia is under the international sanctions and exporting raw materials and especially the hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil has always been Russia's economy, Russian economy, bread making, you know, the foundation of well-being of Russian economy. So the economy has taken a huge hit. European customers have stopped 
buying Russian oil altogether, and everyone else is paying no more than $60 per barrel, which is a huge hit. Um, it's called the price cap, international sanctions. Uh, the revenue is way down. And to top it off, China and India, the existing oil importers, you know, they're paying a great deal in their own local currencies that are not helping much to the Russian economy. Number two, the spendings are way up. Obviously, there's war going on in Russia, and the expenses are up due to enormous increase in military industrial complex development. Uh, they are making more missiles, you know, more weapons, more tanks, more guns. And um, another thing is there's a huge, by Russian standards, of course, wages paid to the Russian soldiers at the front lines. That's um, Russian government's carrot, so to speak, you know. Number three is exodus of the Western businesses. The companies that have left, they eliminated jobs. They took the technologists away from Russia along with them. All the investors, both Russian and foreign, well, especially foreign, left. Russia is simply toxic for any capital these days, and it has virtually zero investments. Okay, the only the biggest investor and the only investor left in Russia is the Russian government. Number four, high inflation level driven by the record amount of money that has flooded Russian market in form of unsecured bank loans. Uh, number five, disbalance, huge disbalance between exporting and importing. Russia doesn't virtually produce anything. So it doesn't export goods and instead it imports everything, buys everything. So there's a huge disbalance. And number six, huge labor force instant decrease in form of three plus million Russian men left Russia basically overnight, um, escaping mobilization, escaping this crazy situation with, you know, not willing to support the war in Ukraine. And that's driving the amount of taxes generated down a great deal. And most importantly, it's driving the wages for those who re still remain in Russia way up because the employers start competing for the people. They don't have enough people to fill the positions. Therefore, they must just attract people by higher salaries. And that's driving the inflation up as well. Well, these six things have, uh, well, they're major factors that have formed this perfect storm in economy, in Russian economy. And, um, you know, any one of these above-mentioned factors would be a huge blow to any economy in any country. And um, possibly it would throw a country into a recession. And now imagine all of them, all six, coming together and staying spinning above Russia, you know. Uh, and they're all a result of actions of the Russian government. Putin, by his decision to invade Ukraine and started killing the Ukrainian people, he also killed Russian economy at that second when he made the decision. So overall, Russian economy isn't doing that well. Um, 
it's very obvious. It uh, does not take a rocket scientist to understand that. Okay, and any economist would tell you the same. I think you'd have to go back to a period shortly after the Russian Civil War to perhaps find a period where there was such an economic shock to the system. I mean, that that was when Russia was on its knees and, you know, the industrial base was was practically wiped out. Um, but then you had new economic policy and within a couple of years it was resurrected. That won't happen now, will it? Because Russia, as you say, is toxic to foreign investors um, and we don't know how this is going to play out. There's any number of scenarios about how the war might end. I don't think anyone is putting on bets on what will happen in Russia itself and what kind of regime will uh, end up. You know, Jonathan, you brought up a very interesting topic. Um, we can compare to three turmoils in the, well, fairly recent Russian history. First, like you said, was the Civil War. The second was the period after World War II. Uh, we call it the recovery period. And the third was early 90s, starting with a coup when the new country was born and the USSR fell apart. You know, I think none of those periods can compare, especially that for first civil war period, because there's a major difference between back and now, and it's not uh, outside Russia, but in, uh, not inside Russia, not what happened in Russia, but it's um, the world economy, you know, the global economy, the markets that have come together. We don't really have countries anymore. We have one global market and we have uh, local players on this market, okay? And back then the situation was different. Now it's kind of crazy because Russia has isolated itself from the global markets, from the global economy, by its actions, okay? And no country can survive that. No country's economy can survive that because we're too integrated, okay? We are too interconnected. We are too too close to each other. So um, this, this is a very unique situation, you know? And of course, the revenue that is coming in, I mean, Russia is able to sell some of its hydrocarbons, you know, petrol, uh, oil rather, not, not the refined product, but it's selling it to India and China. And of course, it's getting, uh, you know, potentially rupees and yuan, but these are not interchangeable currencies on the global markets. So revenue is coming in, but what is Russia able to spend that revenue on? There must be quite a problem here. There is a huge problem for Russia. It uh, does trade a great deal in local currencies with China and with India. And the problem is that Russia sells um, much you know, oil, obviously oil to both India and China and receives local currency, but it does not buy much from either China or India. What is bought from China is bought by private private enterprises, you know, by private businesses, not on the government scale. I think that um, China is supplying, I don't know, but I have a feeling they supply some kind of a military technology. But that's not a fair um, exchange of money, okay? So uh, Russia cannot spend yuan 
in rupees because you know the chinese uh the, the those countries currencies they are very rarely regulated both china and india don't like when the currencies are um, used outside the countries so they super regulate you know the financial markets and basically it's really hard to use them anywhere in the world when russia goes to a third country to a third party and offers yuans or rupees uh, no dollars euro you know the regular currencies so um russia has accumulated uh quite a bit of yuans and and uh, rupees but it does not help current russian economy okay that's what's going on and you mentioned one of the sort of six points there of course is the flood of people uh, who left Russia in the last year and a half. Um, many of them, the most educated, the most talented, uh, you know, the most a- ambitious, uh, I would say, in society. Um, they've taken their incomes, they've taken their brains uh, and their hardworking limbs uh, to other countries. And there's other countries are now benefiting hugely. Um, you know, there are stories of property prices, you know, going through the roof in Tbilisi and many other cities where you have, uh, you know, an influx of uh, of uh, Russians. Um, if we turn to the possibility of the war ending, and I think the assumption we both make is that the battlefield will grind on, but the only way to win this war quickly and save many lives is to somehow crash the Russian economy and political system. Um, to win or to perceive that he's winning, Putin may well have to call another round of conscription, but this time far harsher, and extend it to the large educated urban centres, places like um, St. Petersburg, Moscow, Katerinburg, cities which have been largely untouched. Now, the dual impact, of course, may be to create some sort of unrest and resistance, but it may also prompt another massive wave of people trying to flee or hide. What are the economic implications of a second wave or a harsher wave of mobilization? Jonathan, I would um, um, disagree a little bit. Uh, you saying that it, you know we need to crush Russia from uh, outside. I think the worst enemy of Russia is Russia itself. You know, no one can crush Russia but the Russians. <laughs> They've been doing it pretty successfully, let me tell you. I'm just sitting and watching in awe what they're doing to their own economy. Um, and same goes for the political powers. They will crush current one, but that's going to come from the inside, from the Russians themselves, Okay. Um, you are absolutely right on the mobilization. I also believe that there will be mobilization, and it's coming coming up soon, sometimes. Um, I'm not that optimistic about how many Russians will be able to escape, and I'll explain you why. Russian government is notorious for making mistakes first. Um, it made a big mistake when announced the mobilization last year on September 21st. Basically, one person, it's appeared that it was one person who announced the mobilization and no one had been prepared for that. They simply didn't know what to do. 
there were so many government agencies, branches of Russian government involved in the process, but they did not have an intercommunication. Uh, one hand didn't know what the other one was doing. And that allowed to create many loopholes. And the, those loopholes were the ways out of Russia. I know quite well because I came through, I left Russia through one of the loopholes, okay? But I also saw when I was standing in line, um, you know, to passport control, I saw five people, five Russian young men turned around and were not let out of Russia. I was and quite a few other men were, but there were five people who weren't, you know. But anyway, there were quite a few loopholes and um, Russians used them left and right. That's why there's such a huge amount of um, people who left. But the Russian government is also notorious for learning from its mistakes. And it started learning in October. I remember the date. Um, I think it was October 7th or October 6th. All of a sudden, it felt like someone was placed in charge. And uh, certain goals were given to that person because it's just the, the entire, like all branches of Russian government changed their behavior, changed the way they were, they had been acting, you know. Uh, for, starting with Russian propaganda, who received one message and started just feeding this message to the Russians. For two weeks, everyone was just um, chaotically saying different things, you know, suggesting different things in passport control. People could care less if someone was had been served a summon. Uh, people who were at the mobilization centers, you know, conscription centers, they could care less if people would run away. Their, their idea was, their goal was to serve the summon and so forth. So basically it was chaos. But then um, there was one center, one task force assigned, one person in charge. Uh, they basically set up goals. They set up a um, roadmap. They set up dates and they started working. And they have done very effective job. Basically what they have done in the last year, they changed the legislation and there are new laws that make it nearly impossible to escape basically they tried to eliminate the uh, legal loopholes okay and um the new laws are so atrocious but they're laws and if the government does to you something atrocious they're just there's nothing you can say because it's a new law okay and they did it in front of uh, all russians noses so to speak and then the second thing they improved great deal is the technical part of uh, mobilization procedure. Basically, now they have one unified base. They know everything of a person at the border. They know if the summon is um, issued or not. There's a new law. If a summon is issued, then the person automatically is banned from leaving Russia. Okay. Then driver's license is revoked. Then uh, the trade, you know, they freeze bank accounts. You cannot open a company, close company, cannot sell, buy real estate, and things like that. And uh, even train tickets. A lot of, you, know, you can't even buy that? train. You couldn't even buy a train ticket, for instance, without no, no, showing an ID. Document. You cannot, yeah, because because they know everything about you now. They they learn from their mistakes. So when this new mobilization comes, I believe it's going to be like this: uh, turn of a button, boom. You know, 
yesterday everything was fine everyone was able to leave russia this morning well i'm sorry we the, we have this new mobilization new order or uh, not law but most likely order and you know it's all legal these are the laws law number one law number two and you know it's nothing you could do i believe that um there are still loopholes and people will leave, but I don't believe that they're going to be leaving by huge numbers. They're going to have to go Economic off grid. Complications, they? um, Sorry, well, they're going to have to get worse for the economy. That's all. Yeah. People will have to go off grid. I mean, the other uh, conversation I had last week is with an expert on Yandex. And of course, Yandex has tried to work with the government, but also tried to remain semi-independent uh, of the system. Um, you know, to better or worse degree, you can sort of criticize whether it's possible to function as a tech company within an authoritarian regime. The implication now, however, is that the Yandex has, you know, it now runs taxi service, it runs, uh, you know, dial a pizza, it has all sorts of services that we would expect to get from our tech companies in the West. But it's all part of that Yandex family. The rumors are, of course, now, that the mobilization database can actually potentially leverage data that is used by these mobile delivery services. So you're evading conscription, you order a pizza, you don't get your pizza, you get uh, conscripted instead, they turn up and get you that way. You know, Jonathan, when I was uh, young, you know, I loved science fiction. And in those certain movies, like a mix of horror and science fiction, like utopian society of the future. And this is <laughs> this is happening right in front of our eyes right now. Okay. And you're absolutely right. I think this is the case. I think uh, there's not much Yandex can do because Yandex is a subject uh, of uh, Russian legislation. And if they make a new law regulating, you know, services, then Yandex must... Um, must um, must go according to the law and they will definitely be uh giving information to kgb fsb you know about the taxi service customers uh from where to where uh, how often how much paid with who things like that you know pizza delivery yandex market you know anything just anything i think they're just you know these are tips of the iceberg there are there's much more information that is available to Yandex. We don't even know about us, okay? For example, not just Yandex, but uh, mobile service providers. I mean, they can pinpoint our telephones at any time with location of a few centimeters, okay? <laughs> How easy that's going to be for mobilization. People come and knock on your door. Uh, they don't even have to, you see, according to the new Russian laws, they don't even have to knock on your door anymore. They just serve you an electronic summon, and that's it. You are a subject of mobilization. You cannot leave the country. You cannot drive. You cannot, uh, you can't do anything. Yes, you're absolutely right. You must go off-grid. But, I mean, what kind of life is that? <laughs> you know, uh, so that's extremely scary and extremely sad and it's just a disaster well of course we know that you can't fully go off grid because even if you're in your dacha or something you may have someone down the road twitching the curtains watching you and uh doing yeah. dun dunossi or you know calling up and saying Absolutely. Oh, I, it I would not surprise me it would yes. not surprise me much you know
Yeah. I mean, that happened in East Germany. It happened right across Eastern Europe uh, during the Soviet period. Neighbours ratting on each other. Of course, it happened in Nazi Germany. I mean, this is this is just the way, unfortunately, societies descend in authoritarian systems. Jonathan, you know what's so ironic is that when I was growing up in the USSR, they had this little sci-fi movies. Like they would take um, Ray Bradbury's book, um, Fahrenheit 461, right? And they would make a movie about that and they would place it in, in America. Oh, look what American society is going to look like in the future. And we would be sitting there like young kids, seven-year-old and, you know, seven-year-olds. And, and we're just watching and saying, oh, my God, oh my God this is so terrible. This is happening. <laughs> this is happening in Russia now. You know, how crazy is that? Um, that's incredibly sad. That's it's just terrific. I don't even know what to say. Well, the last topic, and it's like it bookends that, because, of course, my main experience of being in Russia was in the 90s. And it was a period of hope and a period of change. It was also a period where people felt very insecure. And, of course, one of the reasons they clung to the Putin regime is because of the perceived stability that it brought, economic, social stability, and a move away from the sort of gangster capitalism of the 90s. Um, and also it has to be remembered that hyperinflation robbed people of their lifetime savings. And uh, that was extremely painful. The irony, of course, is that, you know, not only are we returning to the 1930s, potentially politically, but returning to the 1990s in terms of economic instability. And the ruble crashed this week uh i know you mentioned that earlier um in in you know the analysis of the economic pressures but what psychologically as well as economically will this have if people go into the shops and they see prices being updated daily they see their savings or their purchasing power literally drying up and disappearing day by day the 90s being terrible in russia is a myth it was created by Russian propaganda in the late uh, teens, I would say, after Boris Yeltsin died. The 90s were absolute unique time. Um, instability was there. Mafia was there. Um, bad things were there. Lots of people could not uh, provide for their family, for for themselves you know but you gotta understand the ussr was a totalitarian country for 70 years and it was like an island in the world again it was it had been isolated from everything we didn't know anything and all of a sudden they just opened the borders and the world the life the culture flew into the country we came from communism well not even a communism but this freakish system of um, total control government's control into capitalism and in the 90s russia was free really free russians were free because the government disappeared it was so weak it was so it, it almost was it seemed like non-existent you remember because you were in russia back then you know um, we were absolutely free to do anything we wanted to. 
um to say anything we wanted to 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 basically to do business and this was the best time in russian history it was uh intoxicating in a good way without drinking it was so free and those wild times everyone says about oh do you remember this is yes i remember hyperinflation i was a teenager and a young adult and i had my first job in those during those years but it didn't last long you cannot take a country like the ussr and like uh, turn a switch and have a capitalism next day you cannot you have to have a gray spirit you have to you have to learn how to live in a different system you know in a different economy in a different paradigm and that's what we were doing we were um switching from the ussr to basically free market economy and that period the wild period lasted for let's say um four years three to four years and i remember 95 late 95 96 they were more or less stable there was no inflation okay and things were getting better yes there were problems street crime was just incredible okay mafia was everywhere and and people were tired of that i understand but russians overcame everything if you remember you know late 90s things were started getting better economy started getting better you know uh, people started learning new new ways people started getting experience okay think people started to get in, uh, to get better at what they did and that's not putin's um that was way before putin it wasn't putin's achievement okay um they started us feeding this myth, uh, this scary, I don't know, Strashilka, that Russia was absolutely terrible in the 90s, I think around 2007, 2008, okay? So we were changing as the country and as the society. And what followed after the 90s, and again, it's not Putin's achievement, uh, was an incredible growth of the economy, Okay. That was due to people uh, doing the right things after a 10-year period of learning, of getting experience, finally, okay? Uh, the price of oil helped, okay? But uh, the economy was changed. The society was changed, okay? And Russia was doing fantastically during those years. I call them the golden years, the good years, and... Um, that's what I think. Um, people have been engineered to believe that the 90s were bad. To some, especially older people who could not switch, who were not flexible enough. Yes, very hard time. Okay. But to the rest of us, it was not bad. We just overcame and we succeeded. I, I, I can judge by myself. I can judge by people around me. Um, I know many more successful people and unsuccessful than people in poverty. I know both both kinds, but um, you know, uh, I'm trying to be um, objective here. No, I totally agree with that. You know, and obviously at that time I was uh, in my early twenties and mixing with people of the same age, and the overriding sense was of optimism, as you say. You know, uh, one day most of world literature, cinema, 
culture was banned. The next day, you suddenly had sort of 50, 60 years of cultural output of the West just flood in. And if that's, you know, if you're part of that part of society, highly educated, and you really benefited from that hugely, you could travel abroad, you could gain new experiences, um, you could meet foreigners for the first time. I mean, there was a period where that was a novelty to people, you know, meeting their first English person, the first American. And, uh, you know, some people would actually collect foreigners, a bit like, you know, playing top trumps, <laughs> sort of boast. <laughs> Uh, absolutely agree. And for well, older people, older people, well, it's different. Well, you know. Let me let me tell you something. Um, to finish this topic, unfortunately, what people are going to face right now, from now on, is pretty much the early nineties. Very hard time. The galloping inflation. When the inflation is in double digits, it's called galloping. Um. That's coming. It's here. It's not coming. It's here already. The ruble has devalued a great deal, and it's going to result in... I mean, this just a bunch of um, economic things, but um, without going into details, I, 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 you, 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 you will see for yourself. So I always compare Russian economy to the Titanic. Titanic, when it was hit by the iceberg, it did not sink for 2 hours, 40 minutes. And 2 hours, 40 minutes have been up for Russian economy. That's 18 months. We are seeing right now um, very bad economic situation where um, the expenses are up, earnings are down. Russia doesn't produce anything, buys everything from abroad. In Russian ruble is losing value against, has lost a great deal of value against um, other currencies. And this is like a catch 22 vicious circle one thing will be driving another you know ruble will be going down and then inflation is going to be going up and uh, the prices will be up and people are heading towards 1992 very very fast i think that in 2004 we'll see situation in russia somewhere close to what was happening in um 92 93 but that that was the toughest time. I mean, uh, that's was the the first year, ninety two, when I went to Moscow. Yes, and, toughest uh, time and very unstable. Very unstable. I mean, people. The city was empty in the summer. It was empty because everyone had gone to their dachas to grow food, because there was that potatoes. little, yeah, potatoes, cucumbers, apples, whatever they could grow, because they didn't know if they could actually afford food. They didn't know if there'd be food in the shops to get them through yes. winter. So people were stocking up. It was a survival economy. And that is terrifying. And they canned it afterwards. And they canned it, yes. And then uh, you'd scrape the little surface of mold off and eat the rest. Yeah. <laughs> and the oh, big yes. jam jars oh, yes. under, under the sink. But yeah, they're heading back to that uh, era very rapidly. I mean, the last question I want to ask, really, and that's hopefully we'll link this all together. Clearly, Ukraine is making gains on the battlefield. But if this war is to be decided on the battlefield alone, it could take a number of years to play out, given the pace of change, the, the grinding slaughter that's going on. However, the way the economy is going, do you think it's far more likely that it's economic factors that are going to end the war and end it far, far sooner than, say, 2025? I am a believer 
in uh, that the victory for Ukraine will come not from the battlefields, but from inside of Russia, and it will be produced, engineered by the Russians themselves. I see two scenarios um, for both um, political change and economic change. Well, one will drive another, really. One scenario is that the economy will continue falling. And, well, in Russia, there's still some kind of a free economy, okay? It's not the USSR yet, at least. And um, people will become poorer and poorer. The inflation will be enormous. And that is going to affect the society a great deal, okay? And that might lead to political changes because, again, Russian, the vertical of power, Russian government is not a solid piece of rock. It has different power groups inside, okay? And if one of the groups, just like uh, Prigozhin, Surovikin, that group, when they saw an opportunity, um, they tried to change things in Russia, you know, two months ago. They uh, failed. But uh, I think that there are others in their sitting and they're doing planning, basically. Okay. And they're going to be waiting for the right moment. And the economy might bring them the right moment. Okay. Um, that's one scenario. The second scenario is Russian government um all those power groups they will come either to an agreement with you know the current leadership or they will simply be eliminated you know they will just disappear and there will be one center very strong one and they will take the entire economy and they will turn it to let's say north korea to point oh uh, an updated version of North Korea, the digital North Korea. And then what you're saying, the situation of the battlefield that might be going on for a long time. And uh, we call it in Russia is a slow war situation, slow war scenario. You know, I certainly hope it does not happen. Okay, because uh, Ukrainians don't deserve it. The Russians don't deserve it. You know, no one deserves it. That's terrible for everyone. Um, what's the likelihood of that happening? I don't know, but that's definitely a possible scenario. I think that the first one is more probable. We have to hope for that because the war ending sooner uh will save so many lives i mean that was one of the most moving experiences i had in lviv which was visiting a military cemetery which uh, until recently was a memorial to the second world war you know a classic sort of soviet fairly impersonal uh, memorial now you have mm -hmm. a couple of acres of fresh graves with flags fluttering in the wind uh, relatives but it's on a field it's on a field that is, you know, 10 times bigger than this huge ceremony, uh, cemetery. And if this war grinds out over the next two years, that that field will be filled and, and many others like it. Um, so we just have to hope that something happens soon. Jonathan, all I can say is, um, you know, Ukrainians, please forgive us. And I really don't know what else to say.
that is definitely the right the right place to end there and uh think of the ukrainian sacrifice think of their resilience their bravery and we can only hope that uh that uh, something happens sooner rather than later to end this quicker and and that will get russia on a path to recovery one hopes as well one has to have a, a degree of optimism there uh that it can reform and change Consin, it's a huge pleasure speaking to you it's immensely important i think having these conversations uh and creating dialogue and i know that's something you are very active in doing and i look forward to our next opportunity to talk Jonathan, thank you so very much. It's an honor uh, to be here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to next time.